Matthew 21. Now Jesus will finalize his arrival at Jerusalem and then be attacked with a series of questions by the religious leaders in an attempt to entangle and trap him and discredit him for the last time. The next three chapters are filled with controversy against Jesus, and he denounces the nation of Israel. It is judgment against Israel, the nation. He's um, constantly attacked, maligned, accused, and um, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God has the end of his patience. We, where that is, we don't all exactly know. But each individual is responsible to not cross that line. And so, this morning we dealt in death with chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get that. It's an incredible prophecy. Um, it's a triumphal entry of Jerusalem. And you have Mark 11, 1 through 11, the cross-references, the passages. And Luke 19, 28 through 38. And even John gets into this in John 12. 12 through 18. So uh, this um, fulfilled prophecy is in all four Gospels. Uh, verse 1 through 3, you have the sending of the two disciples by Jesus. The arrival is stated now when they, had, um, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Bethphage, again, means the house of unripe fruits. The exact location, we don't know. It's on the it's on the southern, eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Some of you, again, will be there with us next week. We'll point those things out to you. Bethany and Bethphage were close together. And uh, two miles from Jerusalem. And the command of Jesus' disciples is given there at the end of verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus sent two of saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So Jesus sends these two disciples. We don't know who they are. They're not recorded in any of the Gospels who they be. But the village here is not named, and it's opposite to where he is. He just spent the day before at Bethany all day, um, and, and, and they had a supper for him, John tells us, John 12, 1 through 3. And, um, and now the village opposite, Jesus has either made arrangements or he speaks to the man uh, through a word of knowledge as the apostles approach him for the donkey and the colt. Um, they would have no problem finding it. And in verse 2, um, he tells us here that they would find him straightway um, in the village. And Jesus prepared them for the objection that they would encounter. In verse 3, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So once again, um, Jesus knew all things. He's omniscient. He, he has foreknowledge, though he did limit himself for a set time as he became um, uh, the incarnate God. But that was uh, as a submissive to the Father. And everything he did, he did in direction and in empowerment and in guidance of the Father to give us an example as the last Adam as he would come to die for the sins of the world. In verse 4 through 7, this uh, was all according to prophecy, Matthew tells us. The proclamation is fulfilled. 
um, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Matthew writes to the Jews, they were the recipients of the word of God, the oracles of God, Paul says to the Romans. So therefore, they had the greater responsibility. God chose a nation out of Exodus, made the nation, gave them the scriptures, gave them the prophets, gave them the land, and yet they were the ones responsible. You as a parent know that your child... As he grows in your house, the older he gets, the more he knows, the more he knows you, the more he knows the rules of the house. So when he crosses those lines when he's one year old, it's one thing. When he crosses the line when he's 18 and 19, that's another thing. To those much is given, much more is required. And so the key phrase of Matthew, that it might be fulfilled 14 times in his book, and six times it is written. Uh, key phrase. The particular prophecy tells the daughter of Zion, he says in verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. This, uh, again, is 550 years after the prediction. No other book has prophecy. Not the Mormons, not JJWs, not anybody. Only the Bible. Because it is God's revelation of the future. And so here, um, the daughter of Zion is personified, the city here. A king coming um, to you lowly, sitting on the donkey, the cold, the full of a donkey. Um, Zechariah 9.9 is the verse that he is quoting. Uh, Isaiah 62.11 also picks up the phrase, daughter of Zion. Um, this verse predicts the first and the second coming, as we said this morning. They're, they're, uh, they're mixed in together, as many of the Old Testament prophecies that were short-term and long-term fulfillment, such as the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and also Isaiah the prophet, chapter 61, verse 1 through 3, when Jesus went into Nazareth and picked up the scroll and said, This day in your hearing, the scripture fulfilled, closed the book, he stopped right after a comma, and the rest is for the second coming. Now, the verse here predicts this first coming in part. Um, Zion is the parched place, what it means. And it's the hill, which is the highest and the more ancient part of Jerusalem that was built. It's an imperative command. Uh, Behold, the, your king is coming to you. And they were to pay attention. They were to respond individually. It is in the middle voice, an imperative command. No one can repent for you. No one can accept Christ for you. No one can acknowledge their, your sin except you. And so therefore, there are some families that will be saved. All fam the entire family will be in heaven. But it isn't because of a family package. It's because each individual has come to confess and acknowledge their sinfulness and ask God to forgive them. Uh, God has no grandchildren. Uh, we do, but he does not. Um, Matthew and Luke preserve the record of the genealogy of Jesus. He's the king of the Jews. Matthew presents him as the king of the Jews. Uh, Matthew in chapter 1. Uh, Luke in chapter 3. Once an ascension, once a dissension. One goes through Solomon. The other one goes through Nathan. Jeconiah was cursed of the line. And therefore, it doesn't matter what Joseph's line is because he's not the true father anyway. But both Mary and Joseph were in the line of David. And so that's a big, uh, important fact there. 
the character of the king lowly, sitting on a donkey, or the cold of a donkey, lowly, humble, gentle. Jesus uses that as an invitation to come to him in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Uh, uh, come unto me, O they're heavy laden, I will give you rest. I mean, gentle, hard. The kings rode on donkeys. Remember when David, remember when um, David's son tried to, uh, Adonijah tried to establish himself as king and, and Nathan came in and tells David, hey, have you given the okay? He says, no, get Solomon and put him on my horse and get him and then um, take him up there. And so you have the um, royalty sign of a donkey. Um, the horse was emblem of war. And you also have that through the book of Judges. Uh, some of the judges rode uh, and their sons rode on donkeys. Judges 5.10, 10.4. Now Matthew and John mention two donkeys. The male, I mean the colt, and the mother. In Mark 11.5 and Luke 19.30 and uh, John 12.15. Um, Mark and Luke only mention one. Matthew and John mention the two. So there's no contradiction. Um, just supplementary information that I said this morning, and this is what you do with the first three gospels. They're called synoptic. They see the same thing, but describe it from different angles. And so you put them side by side, called parallel, and then you can examine the little differences and get the whole picture on it. John is completely different. He uh, chooses seven signs, seven miracles to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and believe that you might have eternal life. And, um, but still, he covers some of that material. And when we can cross-reference, we do that. But it's not a synoptic. Um, Matthew quotes here again Zechariah, but only in partial fulfillment. He didn't quote the words in verse 9 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, shout, or he is just in having salvation indicating um, deliverance or victory. Um, this will be fulfilled in the second coming. Uh, this I know is called a triumphal entry, but it really is not. It was from heaven's perspective, for Jesus was coming to die for the sins of the world. He will come back as King of kings and Lord of lords, where he will destroy the armies of the world and uh, judge the nations of the world and set up the kingdom triumphantly. Um, but um, the first part was here in the entrance to Jerusalem. Now the two disciples carried out the instructions of Jesus. Verse 6 through 7, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the coal and laid the clothes on them and set him on them. Meaning the cloaks, the garments, not the two donkeys. Again, um, it's important to distinguish between the two there. Um, it, and not only is this prophecy being fulfilled here that he quotes Zechariah, but the seventh week of Daniel uh, in Daniel 9, 24 to 26 is the first 69 weeks. Verse 27 of Daniel is the 70th week. That will be for the great tribulation and tribulation. But um, uh, it's tied together. Um, when you figure out the prophecy in Daniel, the first 69 weeks have already been fulfilled. It's uh, computed on a 360-day Bible calendar. If you go to Genesis, you will find that it's 360-day year, 
not 365 Gregorian or Julian year calendar, okay? And so the prophetic calendar is based on a 360-day year. When you compute that and multiply by 7, you come up with 483 years to the day. If you come out with days, it is 173,880 days. You need a countdown. The countdown is given to us when Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem on May 14, 445 B.C. You project that forward, 483 years or 173,880 days. It falls right on the date that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The exact day. Amazing prophecy. Too much for coincidence. And so um, there's only one week left, the 70th week, which will be the seven-year tribulation and great tribulation that will take place after Jesus removes his church through the rapture and the Antichrist appears upon the scene. And uh, first three and a half years, false peace. The last three and a half years, you don't want to be alive if you're left behind. It'd be better that you die than live, Jesus said. Such a time as it's never been or ever will be. Now, we've had some pretty horrible times. World War One, World War Two, Korean War, um, you know, Vietnam, Afghanistan, all kinds of different things. Pretty bad. And yet, that period of history will be nothing in comparison to what we've had. Now, verse 8 through 11 you have the crowds now joining in the celebration. The people were enthusiastic. The multitudes spread their clothes uh, and branches on the road. Uh, a great multitude. Um, and this was something that was in celebration. You find that in Second um, Kings 9.13 as they spread the garments uh, for Jehu. Um, it's a form of respect, a form of celebration. The two crowds uh, um, are present here, one from Jerusalem, the other one that came with Jesus. Then the multitude in verse 9, uh, who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. It comes from the great Hillel songs that were sung in the feast days as they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem, Psalm 113 to 118. The specific quote here is Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. This is the only time Jesus allowed public worship of himself. He never did. Every time they tried to grab him to establish him as king, he, he'd just go through the crowd. First time. Now, the crowds were overwhelmed. And when he had come to Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, verse 10, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? The word moved there, as we said this morning, we get the word seismic from it for earthquakes. I mean, it was just a big uproar. Remember the Jewish mindset by many of these apostles and disciples uh, that they believed that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom. They are ready to rule. They are ready to reign. They are ready to just be on the right hand and the left hand as James and John and their mommy have already petitioned Jesus. And um, they are certain. And yet uh, this was a big conversation between them constantly. 
who was the greatest in the kingdom. They just didn't get the fact of being servants. And yet Jesus was, and you know, you could sometimes you say, well, you know, I mean, you know, this guy really must not have been a good example, you know, because you see the way their kids turn out and all that. But listen, Jesus was a perfect example. And these knuckleheads just didn't get it. So sometimes people don't turn out good, their kids, because parents are bad example. But at other times, parents are good examples. They're godly. They pray for them. They just got rotten kids. You know, there are some godly people that have some, um, some wicked, ungodly children. And there are some godly children that have some wicked parents. It's always a matter of choice, right? When you go home, read Ezekiel 18 and 33. He'll give you the choices that each individual has that you can never say, well, you know, I never had a father. It was, my father was bad. All this psychological mumble-jumble is trash. God says, if you have an evil father and you decide not to be like him, which means you have the potential to choose, I will not blame you for his sins or hold you responsible for their sins, but I'll hold you responsible for your sins. We always want to blame somebody else. If you had an evil father, you would never compare your father to God. You knew your father wasn't God. Oh, I have a hard time being with God because my father used to beat me, this and that. Somebody taught you that. You would not make that connection. All right? That's what happens when you get indoctrinated in today's education of self-esteem and love me before I can love others. Listen, you start loving yourself, you're not going to have the time for anybody else. It's unbiblical. He tells husbands, husband, love your wives. As you love yourselves. He says, listen, husbands, take a look of the sinful way you love yourself first. Now, if you would love your wife the way you love you, you'll be the best husband. So take an example from your sinful, evil practice and turn it to the best way and you'll be all right. Our nature is selfish, self-centered, simple. Now, They're enthusiastic here. The two crowds are there. The Hillel's being sung. And in verse 10, they're asking, who is this? This comes into Jerusalem. The Galilean crowd responds. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 11. The prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, 18, he says, I will require his words at the hand of every person. He entered the city and he would be crucified. Not many days after, the same crowd that is just cheering him will just be crying out, crucify him. People are fickle. People are users. You and I are bad news. We are not good. We are good for nothing. Unless God grabs a hold of our life, God help everybody around us. The trinity of darkness, me, myself, and I. There's no room for anybody else on top. It's the way it is. 
Jesus would come into Jerusalem the next three days. Right now he's going to walk in and look at the temples we're going to see. And he just looks around. And um, Matthew portrays him as the king. Mark portrays him as the son of man. Luke portrays him as the son of, uh, the servant of man, Mark. The son of man, Luke. And then the son of God, John. But the three full offices of king, one is by Matthew, the king. And then as he walks in and he overturns the tables in the temple, he says, as a high priest. And then the last one, uh, he is a king priest and prophet, as Luke tells us, as he prophesies judgment over Jerusalem, as he weeps over Jerusalem. If you would have known this your day, the things that were prepared for you, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And he wept. He wept as he pronounced judgment over Jerusalem. Comes the cleansing of the temple here in 12 through 17. The parallel passages, Mark 11, 11, and also 15, 19, and then Luke 19, 45 through 46. In verse 11 and 14, the expelling of all those profiting from the worship of God by Jesus the priest here. The righteous indignation of Jesus is demonstrated. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. They were merchandising the people of God. Mark tells us Jesus came in this first day, Sunday, after he rode into Jerusalem on the cold and just looked around and then went to Bethany with the 12, Matthew 11, 11. Uh, or Mark 11, 11 tells us that. So you have to put them side by side. Matthew, remember, is not interested in chronological order. So as we compare them to the other ones, we'll get the order. Jesus cleansed the temple on the second day, Monday. The first day, he just walks in and looks around and leaves and goes to Bethany. Matthew, again, is not answered in chronology. The word for temple, herion, refers to the temple court area where the Gentile and the women and the court of the Jews, that whole outward area. Uh, this is the second cleansing. The first cleansing, as you know, was in the beginning of his ministry. John chapter 2, 13 through 22 uh, records that. The money changers converted the Roman coinage into shekels. Uh, for 15% profit, of course. And that's a great, great business, selling money. Every time you change it, you get a piece of it. You know, it's possible for you to sit in a house of exchange, grab $100, ask them to change it into whatever it is, whether it's shekels or whatever it is, and they keep a little piece, they give you back certain, and if you change it back to dollars, they'll take another little piece, and you can go back and forth about, a, about 13, 14 times, then you have no more dollar. You don't have nothing. It's all been taken. Best business. You don't have no inventory. You don't need a factory. You don't need rooms. You just, just money and you bank it. Greatest business in the world. That's why banks are so wealthy. <laughs> they take a piece of everything you have. You're going to make a withdrawal. It's a charge. You're going to use your little card. It's a charge. You're going to send oh, a money order. It's a charge. And they laugh all the way to their bank. Um, the sacrifices were also merchandise. Um, you would bring in, they have to be examined by the priest, and of course they would find some kind of spot on your 
go your dove the poor would only afford doves and you would have to buy one there in the temple which was marked up you know there are certain places where you ladies go shopping and you know which uh, stores mark things very expensive you don't go there you make your dollar stretch and you make it last now people have money and they don't care they just shop wherever they want right um these guys were merchandising the people of God. I wonder what Jesus thinks about today's church as they merchandise what I call Jesus junk. Um, there's a legitimate need for Christians to have good materials and a service to them. And certainly whatever profit, whatever it is for missions or whatever it is. But um, the gouging of people for uh, the things of uh, of God are, is incredible today. It's just amazing to me. And yet, um, God here demonstrates his, um, his wrath, really, his displeasure over it. Um, they were also taking shortcuts to the temple in Mark eleven sixteen, And, of course, for a little cash, you can cut through the temple and I have to go all the way around. It's a shortcut home, you know. You cut off 20 minutes, hey, you know, get home enough to eat dinner or something. And uh, so they would just merchandise. I think of the merchandise that goes on in Christian TV, on Christian radio, over pulpits as they beg people, they prod people, they move people emotionally, they sell the big program. And um, um, it's amazing, just amazing. You know, Pastor Chuck used to really get down, and he would expose people. And now um, many of the big Calvaries and the ones who sat under Chuck's leadership, they do the same thing. They kind of forgot, right? You can always rationalize, right? See, once you build a machine, you've got to feed it, right? But if you're teaching the Word of God and you're not begging, and that was Chuck's philosophy where God guides, he provides, you just feed the sheep and whatever God does, he does. You live within your means, right? Simple. I mean, when you're a little short, do you go around the neighborhood and take an offering so you can pay your rent? Then why should the church? If people are being fed, then God's going to direct their hearts. And if not, then God's going to meet us some other way. And if not, you close the doors and go sit in church and you study and follow and serve the Lord somewhere else. No big deal. And that was one thing that no one could take away from Chuck. He um, depended on the Lord and God knew he could handle all that and he blessed him incredibly. There was a time when Calvary Costa Mesa made more money off their investments than their tithes. God blessed Pastor Chuck because he was a man of God. He was a good steward and he always used everything for the people of God. That's always very, very admirable. Now, in verse 13, the righteous charge against the religious leaders is stated. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The purpose of the temple was for be a house of prayer, Jew and Gentile, as proselytes. Remember, Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8 in the dedication. 
If my people are, if they're enslaved or they go out to war or they fall into sin and they pray, hear from them and answer them. And then he speaks about the Gentile proselytes too. And this was to be a house of prayer where they could lift their heart to God. Isaiah 56, 7 also picks that up. The temple became a place that housed evil people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They were merchandising the people of God. And they were there thinking that they were saved because this was God's house and therefore God would not destroy or bring judgment. Well, if they would have studied their history, Jeremiah chapter 7, God told Jeremiah to go to the, the gate of the temple and stand there at the gate. And his people are coming out and say, trust not in the saints, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They're lies. You think you're safe in here and you're all evil. You don't repent. You kill the prophets. Hey, Babylon's going to come. They're going to drag you off to slavery and captivity. False assurance. Practicing evil and thinking they're okay because they are around God's property or God's vintage. And some people come to church thinking that as long as they're here, you know, it, it's going to help them and all that. Listen, if you're not walking with God, no one can help you. It doesn't make any, I don't care who you hang out with, you know. I don't care if you hang out with Billy Graham and he's no longer here, but uh, his son or whoever you think is holy or Daffy Duck, it doesn't make any difference. You've got to walk with God and you've got to own up to your own life and that's it. Um, there's, there's, there's no sharing of anything. It's just me and Jesus, no one else. And I will have to give that account. And so he, uh, he accuses them here. Uh, it house, house of den of thieves. I think Jesus would say that today in many churches. Den of thieves. Um, they, they, they're running the church like a corporation. Uh, they're merchandising. They're using marketing skills. They're doing all this stuff. Again, people can sometimes get down on me and all that, but you know what? So be it. It doesn't make any difference. If God told the prophets to warn the people about the false prophets, I have the same responsibility for false shepherds and for shepherds that merchandise people. It's just that simple. In verse 14, the proper purpose of the temple is restored by Jesus. Then the blind and the lame came to him, the temple, and he healed them. So it's a house of prayer. They come asking for healing, and Jesus responds. He heals them. So he returns it back to what God intended the house to be. I love it when I, you know, this building is nothing without you guys. It's just a building. But when I see people come on Sunday morning during the week, on Tuesdays or tonight, and you're coming to fellowship with God, to open your heart to God, to hear the word of God, I, I, that, that's the only worth of this building. The building is nothing. It means nothing. It's a place for us to meet, to be a witness, a light to the community, a place where you can grow in your spiritual life, a place where God will direct and guide you, where you will meet some of your best friends for life and eternity, a place where you can meet people of, of the same mind, the same spirit, 
uh, an area for your children to be protected and to grow and be equipped to live in the world but not of the world. Stop and think of some of the people that may come here. If it wasn't for the church, the world would beat them up, eat them, chew them, and spit them out. You know, you were in the world, the pecking order, right? And so God changes our heart. He transforms our lives. And what a, what a difference God has made in us. And now we can try to be as much like him as we can, even though we're not perfect. But what a difference there has come over our life by the grace of God. Verse 15 through 17, the objection of the religious leaders is given. The hostile attitude of the religious leaders in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, the son of David, the Messianic, uh, the messianic title, they were indignant. Just like when the, the James and John asked for the right and left hand, and then the other ten got mad, right? Same word, indignant. The religious people are insensitive to the things of God. Even as Jesus is doing this wonderful work, these marvelous deeds, healing and, 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 and everything, and they, they get ticked off. Why? Because it's taking attention away from them, power away from them, influence away from them. They want to be seen. You know, you need to be transparent. That's why I don't move around. You know, I'm not a motivational speaker. You teach the word of God. Don't bring attention to yourself. Pick up your Bible and say, God, in this little movement. You know, you don't need none of that. You're here to focus on God. So you're not distracted. We don't have a fancy building. So you're not saying, oh man, look at that corner. Clean. Good lighting, comfortable seats. You can hang in there for an hour or so. But you're not distracted. You're here to hear the voice of God. They direct and guide you. Again, son of David, the messianic throne. The chief priests and scribes were indignant. Jesus rebukes them, pointing them to the scriptures. Verse 16. And he said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah. Have you not read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? He's quoting Psalm 8 too. Jesus pointed them to the scriptures. When somebody asks you, why are you a Christian? You should be able to give them the scripture. Why do you believe that man is evil? Point, take them to the scriptures. Where's this rapture thing? Point them to the scriptures. You give them the scriptures, not our opinion. Jesus left the religious leaders in 17. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Jesus left them having to put an end to the Old Testament uh, economy here symbolically by cleansing the temple. He would pronounce judgment and in 70 AD, Titus would come in. Jesus went out of Jerusalem to Bethany, two miles away on the Mount of Olives. This is Monday. Every day since Sunday, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He does not spend the night in the city. Not one night. Mark tells us Jesus went out of the city to Bethany with the twelve. 
after the triumphal entry on Sunday and continuously, Mark 11, 11 and verse 19. And so now in verse 18 to 22, you have the cursing of the fig tree. The parallel passage is Mark 11, 12 through 14. The re-entrance here of Jesus to the city. This is Tuesday now. Now the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Verse 18. So Mark tells us that this was the second day, Monday, before Jesus goes to cleanse the temple, which Matthew records out of order, as we saw in verse 12 and 19, because Matthew is not interested in chronology. He puts it in a different way. The third day is Tuesday. This is when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, Mark eleven twenty and Luke nineteen forty one through forty four. Now, the withering of the fig tree and seeming contradiction is important. Look at verse nineteen. And seeing the fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it. Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered. Verse 19. The cursing that took place according to Mark was on Monday. And the emphasis is that the disciples heard it, the cursing. It says nothing about the tree withering. Mark eleven fourteen. They heard him cursed the tree. The focus in Mark is that Israel would no longer be the instrument of God's blessing to other nations. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. The fig tree is symbolic of Israel as much as the vine. Both of them are used in this chapter. The cursing that took place according to Matthew was on Tuesday in the morning. An emphasis is that immediately the fig tree withered away and hearing by the disciples is not part of it in Matthew 21, 19. But the scene, the focus in Matthew is that Israel would not be the recipient of God's blessings. No one, let no fruit grow on you ever again. So the focus and emphasis is different. You've got to put them next to each other and you've got to mark the distinctions. No contradictions. So they heard it on Monday, the cursing. Tuesday morning, they saw it wither before their eyes. Okay? There's the difference. No contradiction. So the only logical solution, again, is obvious. Observing the differences is very important. The curse in Mark focuses on the disciples having heard it. The cursing of the tree came first on Monday morning. The curse in Matthew focuses on the disciples seeing the curse take place immediately. Came second Tuesday morning. And there's the distinction between the two. No contradiction. Remember, Jesus never stayed in Jerusalem again. The last week, he goes back and forth, back and forth. Jesus found no fruit on it, and therefore uh, it had no leaves. Since there were leaves, there should have been figs on it. The first figs are May, June. Some even go Mar uh, April or so, the latter end of April. The second figs are in August to September. 
Because there were leaves, there should have been some ripe figs there, okay? There weren't. So it's not that Jesus is being mean and evil or had a bad day. Some people try to find fault with Jesus. Jesus commanded the tree to die. Immediately it withered away. A very clear outward evidence. Mark says, dried up from the root. 1120 of Mark. Again, the fig tree is a symbol and representative of Israel. Jeremiah 24, Hosea 9.10, Joel 1.7, and then we will see it again in Matthew 24, verse 32. God is bringing to an end the ceremonial ritual emptiness of Israel. Judgment is falling on her. 20 to 22, the teaching regarding the fig tree, the parallel passage, Mark 11, 20 through 24. The response of the disciple was to be dumbfounded in wonderment and admiration. And when the disciples saw, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? They didn't ask, What does this mean? They said, How did you do that? <laughs> The disciples were instructed by Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. The ultimate authority, assuredly, I say to you, the condition, if you have faith and do not doubt, James picks that up. Faith comes by hearing by the word of God in Romans. And then James says, then be a doer, not just to hear the word. Without faith, it's impossible to please God in Hebrews. And he speaks about the uh, without faith, nothing will happen. Now, faith always points us back to the revelation of God, the word of God. It's not mind over matter. It's not a gut feeling. It's not emotions. It's you acting on what God says we can act, what we can trust him for, what we can believe. Now, the outcome, notice, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but also to the mountain be removed. Now, Jesus mentions that the disciples could not cast out the demon from that son when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration because of their unbelief. And he went on to teach them that this, is, this kind does not go out but by prayer and fasting. Again, faith always brings you back to the Word of God. Um, it's when God directs and guides you. And He's the one that's directing you. It doesn't mean you can just ask anything that you want. The disciples are exhorted to apply the principle of prayer here in 22. And whatever thing you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Receiving a subject to the requirements of who's he talking to? Disciples and apostles. You ready for the requirement? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. If you're a disciple, you're not going to be praying for a Porsche or for a 4,000 square foot house. Okay? You're going to be asking for the things of God's will and his direction. Okay? You're going to be praying for God to give you wisdom, be a good steward of your money and then your job to advance you. But you're going to do your best. You're going to be faithful. You're going to be a good steward. And so prayer is really uh, to do the will of God, 
not simply to have him be like a, a Santa Claus or something. Um, therefore, the petition will be by asking, it will be in line with the will of God, for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. In 23 to 27, you have the authority of Jesus' question. The parallel passage is Mark 11, 27 through 33, and Luke 20, verse 1 through 8. In 23, the temple authorities confront Jesus. This is the third visit of Jesus on Tuesday now. Now, when he came into the temple, um, the cross reference again is Mark 11, 20 and 27. The religious rulers ap approached Jesus. The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching here. Now, they didn't interrupt him, so they probably just waited. The rulers asked two questions and said, what, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? The word authority is the word exousia. It means by what recognized person that has delegated the permission for you to act in such manner, teach and heal. Whose authority? What's his name? Because, see, they were the temple authorities. They were the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if you will. Sadducees, Pharisees. The response of Jesus silenced the temple authorities in verse 24 to 27. Jesus answered the chief priests and elders with a question. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 24, Jesus asked, the baptism of John, whether was it from, uh, where was it from? From heaven or from man? The temple rulers had two options. The first, they responded among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? He had him in a corner. The second, but if you say, if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they knew what authority and whose authority for John bore witness that Jesus was from God, the Lamb of God. John 1, 29. The Lamb of God would take the wisdom of the world. So they knew, but they didn't want to recognize that authority. When someone doesn't recognize an authority, they just do what they want. Some of these guys in the freeway, you know, they race, they think they're a NASCAR. They don't care if they kill you. Look at verse 27 there. The rulers lied and their answer to Jesus. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. So Jesus refuses to answer them and he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things because they knew. They're playing games. The parable of the two sons is given next. 8.28-32, the parable is found only in Matthew. It's unique. 28-30, through 30, the proclamation of the parable, the Lord Jesus asked the religious leaders to make a judgment between two sons. He says, but 
What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterwards regretted it and went. This was from everyday life. A parable, taking something you do know, putting next to what you don't know, and knowing what you do know, you'll know what you don't know. That's what a parable is. The vineyard, once again, Isaiah 5. God says, I had you around. I did this. I did that. I watered you. I was expecting nice, juicy grapes. Instead, I got wild grapes. What else could I have done? You know what God said in Isaiah 5? It's not my fault. It's your fault. What do you do if you're a Calvinist? As a Calvinist, you believe everything is predestined. Nothing can happen without God's predestination. God says, I didn't make you bad. You chose to be bad. So I'm going to judge you for being bad. (laughs) Think about it. It's important. The chief priests, the elders are still the audience here. He's talking to them. The Lord Jesus continues. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus is exposing their attitude of hypocrisy of these leaders. The two sons represent the unbelieving Jew. And maybe some that will become believing. But he's not talking about Gentiles here. The first said he would go, but was remorseful. He went. This is the same word that is used for Judas Iscariot. Not transformed, but just remorseful. But at least he went. The second son said he would go, but he didn't go. The application of the parable is given in 31 and 32. Jesus asked the chief priests and elders, which son honored the father? Which of the two did the will of the Father. Jesus had them pronounce their own judgment. He's got them in the corner again. Here's the punchline of the parable. They said to him, the first, not realizing they just nailed themselves. (laughs) Jesus pronounces judgment over them. He agrees with them. Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Wow. Backhand, pow, pow, both sides. Jesus gave the reason for their condemnation. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent or repent and believe him. John came to them by way of righteousness with the authority of baptizing from heaven as he introduces Jesus and identifies him as the Son of God. They didn't repent. And there's a lot of people that hear the word of God. They hang out with Christians. They, they even like whatever, being participants of Christian things, but they never repent. Some guys come into the church just to scheme on you girls. They can come fishing. Why would you? You got to be crazy. Go in the world. You mess with God's people, God will get you and turn you inside out. Amazing. No fear of God. 
verse 33 to 46, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Now, he gives them a double whammy. As if they didn't get it, he's going to get them again. The parallel passages, Mark 12, 1 through 12, and Luke 20, verse 9 through 19. And 33, the proclamation of the parable. The parable is directed against the um, priests again and the elders. Here, another parable. <laughs> he wants to make sure they get it. The setting for the parable, there was a, uh, a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to wine dressers and went into a far country. The landowner represents God. He had planted the vineyard, Israel. He hedged it, protected it against animals. You put this for your vineyard and, 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 enemy, and thieves and that and the wine press is cut into the solid rock so the Juice can flow when they trample it. The towers for protection, for vigilance, and also for living there for a while. The vine dressers represent the religious rulers here. Jesus deals with the responsibility over the people of God as God had leased it out to the vine dressers, the leaders, the people. They had chosen Aaron, the family of Aaron, the elders. And instead of guarding the people of God, they abuse their authority towards the people of God. In 34 to 36, the landowner then sent his servants to collect the due wages. The time of harvest came. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive the fruit, the wages. These are the prophets of God in the Old Testament, he sent them to the kings, to the priests, to the people, to call them to repent. Whoever I sent to you, all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Jeremiah 44, 4. But they stoned the prophets. They didn't pay attention to them. In verse 35, the abusive treatment of the servants and the wine dressers took the servants, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned another. Isaiah 30, verse 9 through 10, it says, This is the rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seer, meaning the prophet, do not see and do not prophet, uh, do not, uh, and, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy uh, deceits, Welcome to the church of today. They love the false prophets. They raise up teachers to their itchy ears. Verse 36, the persistent abusive treatment of the other servants. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. So the same thing again. You can follow with John the Baptist being the last of the prophets now. They did that to him. The vine dressers are the priests again, the elders. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37. Um, you know, I've sent prophets to you. How often I wanted to gather his hand and gather her chicks on the wing, but you would not. So now I leave unto you desolate. You shall not see me henceforth. You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. And they wandered about with sheep's clothing, so on and so forth. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37 to 38, speaks of the hall of faith. In 37, the landowner sent his son at last, thinking the wine dressers, the vine dressers would be restrained. 
Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. I don't think so. Hard hearts, evil hearts, revealing the evil hearts of the vine dressers. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said in themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and seize this inheritance, exposing their love for power and authority, prophesying that they would kill him. So they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and kill him. Wow. 40 and 41, the question on the action of the owner, the response. Jesus asked a rhetorical question that had only one answer by the priests and elders for the abusive power of these vine dressers. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? Jesus gives the punchline. He once again had them pronounce their own judgment. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him fruit in their season. Being smug, they didn't realize that they were hanging themselves. No longer going to be used of God. They were persecuting the prophets. That's Paul. Paul killed Christians thinking he was doing service to God. In 42, the application of the parable, Jesus presented the son in the uh, parable here. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus represents the son uh, in the parable here. Jesus said, have you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in his sight. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse uh, 22 and 23. Um, Peter quotes the psalm also in Acts 4.11 and 1 Peter 2.6-8. He's also quoting Isaiah 28.16. Daniel speaks of the rock cutting out with hands that strikes the image on the, on the feet and it overtakes the whole world in its setting up of the kingdom. That rock cutting out with hands. Speaking about the virgin birth of Christ. And uh, the word rejected there means uh, after close scrutiny and examination, greater judgment. In 43, Jesus pronounces the a consequential judgment over the leaders of the nation. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruit of it. The kingdom taken from them refers to the judgment over the nation of Israel in 70 AD through Titus. The kingdom that is handed over to the other nation is the church, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. Jesus gave the priests and the elders two choices, having two consequences. Verse 44, and whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. If you fall on the rock, you repent, you confess, you're forgiven, you're a new creature. If the rock falls upon you, you are history. That means you reject the rock and you think you can stand up to the rock and you find out that you're under the rock. Wow. 45 and 46, the comprehension of the parable by the religious leaders. It hits them finally. The light went on. They connected the dots. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. The Pharisees were the ritualists, the religious hypocrites. 
The priests were the Sadducees, the materialists, the aristocrats. And yet they were priests and they didn't believe in spirit, angels, or the resurrection. How do you get there? How do you have people who believe in those three and those who don't and they comprise the Sanhedrin ruling the nation? Simple. Look to our nation. Look to our Congress. Look to our Senate. Look to our judges. Look to our educational system. It is a total contradiction to the Constitution of the United States, the Bill of Rights, and everything else that was given to us by our forefathers. One step at a time. And so both comprise the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Their intent to retaliate against Jesus was restrained. Listen, verse 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. It was fear of the people, not the fear of God. If you fear people more than God, ooh, you're in trouble. The people accepted Jesus as a prophet. It seems that the common person usually can connect the dots. Religious people don't. They are so tainted by their religiosity. They are so committed that they will kill anybody who would dare challenge their religion. Christians lay down their lives for people. Religious people will kill you. There's no one more dangerous than a religious people. Christians are not religious. They have a relationship and a commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians have laid down their lives for their enemies throughout history. Religious people do not. There's a big difference. And so Jesus has nailed these religious people. Judgment is falling over Jerusalem. He's going to go to the cross. And he's going to pay the price for the sins of the world by the grace of God. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you for tonight. And Lord, we pray that you just deal with our hearts as we look to these scriptures. There's so much here. And thank you for every person, even here and over the internet. And the Lord, you would use it even over the radio, Lord. Father, we just thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins, then you can call upon him. And he says he will forgive you. He will make you whiter than snow. And he will direct and guide your life. And he will be faithful to you. More than you can even imagine. He proved it and signed it in blood. As he loved you. While you were still in your sin. He wants to cleanse you. Make you new. If this is your desire. By the grace of God. This is a prayer of repentance. Right where you sit. You can say right now. And he's going to make you. A brand new creature in Christ Jesus. This is your prayer. Father I come to you in Jesus name. I ask you to forgive me Lord. For all my sins.
Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.